Where were you born? That's a question everybody can answer. Everybody, and the, everybody can answer it in the sense of you only have one place you were born because you're only born once. What is your birthplace? Every one of us were born. Every one of us was born in a place. And it's important for a few reasons to know why you were born, where you were born. It's important for one reason because you have to write it on documents for the rest of your life. What is your birthplace? So many forms and uh, and things require you to tell your birthplace. Secondly, it defines you one way or another with importance or non-importance. Um, you're defined in some sense by the place you were born. And uh, my daughter, Nora, was born in a town called Poughkeepsie, New York. And uh, so she's defined by the place Poughkeepsie. And it's also it's tough for her because she has to learn how to spell Poughkeepsie and figure out how to write that for the rest of her life. Number three, it's also important because it it becomes your first home. And so again, our series during Advent is this series on the the theme of home from the scriptures. And so we looked at two weeks ago, our eternal home, heaven. We begin with the end. That's how the story is written of we have an eternal home, heaven we're going towards. Last week, we went back to the beginning of the biblical narrative and looked at humanity's first home, which was the Garden of Eden, and learned themes from there. This morning, I'll get to our our home we're looking at this morning in just a moment. But it's important to know where you and I are born because it becomes the place that we we have our earliest life. So if you're born in the modern era, you spend about two days in the hospital and then you get in a little tiny car seat, get wrapped all the way up and you drive home, try not to hit any bumps along the way. And then you get laid in your comfortable new home. Or if you were born in a previous generation, like my grandfather, uh, he was born in his house. And so literally he came out of his mother's womb and he was home. He was in his house, born in his living room. And he didn't go to the hospital for many decades because he didn't have to. He was blessed with good health. Home is the place where you first live and develop a sense of meaning in this world. And so you begin to understand the world based off of what you experience in that first home where you were born. And the world begins to define and understand you based off of where you were born, too. So when you say, I I am so-and-so and I'm from blank, people have a connotation of what that means, whether it's true or not. You begin to take on the reputation of the place where you live. It's you coming from inside your mother's womb to the outside world for the first time. Here you are. Each of us are here, living in the outside world. The season of Advent, as we've been talking about for a few weeks, and as Sarah asked the children, what does Advent mean? Advent means arrival, the arrival of Jesus, both his first Advent, which we just read the story about, but also anticipating the second Advent when he comes again. And you and I are living in between those two advents. And so this season, these four weeks, four Sundays, where we lead up to Christmas, is the time where we both look back to Jesus' birth and look forward to his second coming. And this, this year, we've chosen to look at it through the lens of the theme of home. And so remember, I sang the song a few weeks ago, I'll be home for Christmas. There's just something about the word home during Christmas that takes on a deeper meaning for each of us. So what are we looking at this week? This week, we're going to look at Jesus' first home. 
his first earthly home, I should say, when he was born as a baby, Jesus' first home was the city of Bethlehem. And so I encourage you, if you have a Bible, or there's also included in your bulletin a a little piece of paper with the scripture on it, we're going to go to the prophet Micah from the Old Testament. We're only going to look at verse 2. So Micah 5, verse 2. I gave you the surrounding context on this piece of paper just in case you wanted to see more of the story. But we're going to focus just on verse 2 this morning. And the reason we're going to be looking at that verse is because this is the prophecy from the prophet Micah hundreds of years before that Luke chapter 2 story that tells the importance of Bethlehem to the story, not only of Jesus' birth, but to the story of the world, the story of you and me. What does Bethlehem teach us about life today? What does it teach us about the heart of God? So let me read Micah 5, verse 2, and we'll begin a few points this morning. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is ruler, to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, Bethlehem was six miles outside of Jerusalem. We all know about Jerusalem. It's the powerful capital of Israel, still in existence today. Jerusalem was the powerful place. Bethlehem was six miles outside of Jerusalem. But it's where Jesus was born to bring people inside to God's home, into God's family, into God's presence, into God's home, into God's life. God chose Jesus to be born in Bethlehem for specific purposes. And so this morning, we're being invited to figure out why. Why did God want Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? And what does it, what does it matter for you and me today? I'm just going to put my point out there at the beginning. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem shows us that God invites us inside, inside everything that he is, inside the fullness of who he is. He does that. He invites us inside by first coming to us from the outside. He comes outside to us. So we're going to dig into that a little bit more this, more this morning. So we're going to go inside to Jesus' home. First, by following God outside, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the, the city center, outside of the power, outside of the lights, outside of the spotlight, into this little town of Bethlehem that we just sang about. And we're going to look at three words from this verse. So Micah 5.2, three words we're going to look at. Little, me, coming. Those are the three words we're going to look at. So first, little. Or the word could also be translated insignificant. O little town of Bethlehem. O insignificant town of Bethlehem, as many people thought during that first century. What does Bethlehem show us about significance? What does it show us about what God thinks about significance? It says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. What do you count as significant? Maybe let's identify that first. What is significant in your life? 
What is it that you're, you immediately go to when you think of the word significant? Again, there's some easy ones we can go to, power, attention, beauty, etc. But maybe there's other things that you count as significant. You know, so we had our first snowfall this week in Salem, right? Um, on Thursday, we woke up to a beautiful you know, covering of snow across the city and across the region. Um, and my daughter, Nora, our six-year-old, comes running up to me. First thing, talk about a great way to wake up in the morning. She comes up to me, wakes me up out of bed and says, Daddy, it snowed. And she opens the window and says, Look, there's snow everywhere. And I knew that I had to get my kids to school. So what, what does an adult do? I look to see how much snow did we get? Uh, how much of a pain is this going to be to get off of my car? Is the, are the roads okay? But what Nora saw was snow everywhere. And I told her when we got outside, I said, oh, it's not that much snow. It's just like half inch. It's a dusting. She said, what do you mean it's not much? It's everywhere. <laughs> what I saw as insignificant snow, as in it wasn't an inconvenience, it wasn't deep, because we get the deep snow. She saw as significant because it was wide. It was everywhere. Do you see the difference there of significance? I saw it as insignificant. She saw it as very significant because she saw white snow everywhere. Bethlehem literally was insignificant or little. There's, there's a passage in the, back in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 15. There's 43 verses. Joshua 15 verses 20 to 63. And if I wanted to take a couple of minutes of your time just to prove a point, I could read all 43 of those verses and, and show you something. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to tell you instead. But Joshua 15, is a, it, it describes all the places in the, in the tribe of Judah, all the cities that were listed at that time as the people were going into the promised land for the first time. It lists over 112 cities in those 43 verses, all throughout the tribe of Judah. And guess what city in Judah isn't even mentioned Bethlehem. That's how insignificant Bethlehem was during the first century. It's not even listed among the top 112 places to visit in Judah. There's not many more than 112 places in Judah at that time. There's no significance to Bethlehem. It was a little insignificant town six miles outside of Jerusalem. Yet, it's also the birthplace of someone significant before Jesus. 1 Samuel chapter 17 talks about the true king that God had a heart for in Israel. And it's a family. Jesse is the father and he has all these sons. And Samuel comes and begins to look at the sons one by one and say, is this the king of Israel? And God says, no. Is this the king of Israel? God says, no. And finally they ran out of sons and they said, well, Samuel says, do you have any other sons? Is there any ones that I've forgotten about? And he said, well, there is David, but he's over in Bethlehem and he's watching, the sh- he's watching the sheep. And he said, go get David and bring him over here. And God said, this is my anointed king, the man after my own heart. David was born of Bethlehem. And so for as insignificant as Bethlehem was, it would therefore be known as the city of David because of the significance of David's uh, kingly reign and God's, God's promise to David that a line would come through him, the Messiah would come from the David line. So God could have chosen Jesus to be born in, in Jerusalem, like we said earlier. That was also the city of David. 
It's where the temple was. It's where David reigned. It's where all the significance happened in Israel's history. You could have said Jesus could have been born in the city of David, and they could have thought it was Jerusalem as well. But a, a good reader of the Torah or of the Old Testament at that time would have known that actually the birthplace, the real city of David, was this little, tiny, insignificant town, Bethlehem. Jesus was born in the insignificant, ignored place. And the reason is, is God wants to show us something about what he sees as significant. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5 and James 4 says. And then a famous passage in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself of all his godly character to become a boy, to become a man, become a human just like you and me. And he died the death that we deserved. He became obedient to death on the cross. And then Jesus exalted him and gave him the name above every name so that at the the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But he did it through humility, through emptying, through taking off the significance and taking on the insignificance. Humble servitude and obedience is what God is showing us, even from Jesus' very beginning. Again, Stephen White of Bryson City, North Carolina. To most of you, that probably means nothing. If I talk to people in North Carolina, it means something. And if you're from wherever you are, that means something to you. But Jesus Christ is forever known as born of Bethlehem, born of insignificance, born in obscurity, born in humility. God shows his surprising grace and his preference for the little and the insignificant ones of the world. You see, God is for the poor, the lame, the broken, children, women, tax collectors, sinners, cultural outcasts, all those that the world would see as little or insignificant, especially in the first century, God is for them. And even Bethlehem shows us that. And that is over and against the rich, the powerful, the religious elites, the insiders, the righteous. Jesus later in his life said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need a physician. I, Jesus, came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And that's because he so deeply identified with insignificance, with the poor, with the little. You see, the insiders in the kingdom of God, those who God invites inside his home, are the little ones, the humble, the ones on the fringes, out of sight. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus uplifts the humble. So that's the first word, little. So if you're feeling little today, or if you felt little in your life, you are right in the hand of God. If you're feeling significant this morning, and proud, and large, and lofty, may this be a reminder that God chooses the humble, the humble of heart, the humble of soul. May we humble ourselves before him. Second word we're going to look at is the word me. Me. It says here in Micah 5, 2, it says, For from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth 
for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Who's the, who's the one speaking here in this passage? Who's the one that's writing? Who's the one whose words are recorded? This is the words of God himself. So when he says, for from you Bethlehem shall come forth for me, he says, Bethlehem, you are giving the one that's coming forward for my name, for my sake. And so Bethlehem shows us the purpose of Jesus and shows us God's deeper purpose in all things. So again, I ask you the question. Let's turn it back to you. This sermon preaching is not a, a, one, a one-way street. This is for you to engage with the word of God as well. What do you see as your purpose in life? What do you see as the purpose of life? And I'm going to say, if you begin the answer with anything that has to do with you, you're missing it already. So if you begin with I or me, you're missing the purpose of life. And that's not me saying it, it's the scripture saying it. And it's because Bethlehem shows us that from Bethlehem shall come forward for God, for me. You see, all life is about God's eternal plan and his ultimate glory. And our significance, our purpose in life actually falls perfectly in line with his when we put his glory first. God does all things in the world for his good pleasure and for his purposes. And that actually is our good pleasure as well. It's backwards thinking, but when we put his purposes first, when we put his design first, when we say, God, I want to live for you, then actually we find our deepest significance and purpose for us as well. Again, it's that, it's that humility thing, right? When you humble yourself, you actually find yourself right in God's plan. But how can we trust that? How can you trust an invisible God that you can't see? How can you trust that his purposes are what's best for you? How can that be our best way? And I'm going to say because look at the life of Jesus. When you see the humble king who was born in the humble, Jerusalem, in the humble Bethlehem, and then you see actually how his life lived out, It's not like Jesus was born in humility and then took on power and then totally was living contradictory to his birth and his design. He lived perfectly into humility, perfectly into insignificance in some way. He never shined the spotlight on himself. And and quite the opposite, actually. He shined the spotlight on God, on the Father. He said, I came that my Father would receive glory. Jesus never shined it on himself. Look at Jesus' life. He was born of a virgin in obscurity in Bethlehem by God, by the Holy Spirit, to satisfy hearts in God, to draw all people to God, to do and be what we could not be or do, which is living out the will of God. He was what we could not be, which was God himself. Perfection, beauty, healing, joy, love, forgiveness. And ultimately, he died on the cross as God. He laid his life down. He died on the cross, sacrificed himself, and rose again, ultimately to glorify God. All of Jesus' life was about pointing to the reality of the Father in heaven, to, to glorify God, to make him significant. That's what the word glory means. The word glory means significant. We were just talking about this a little bit in our Wednesday evening Bible study, but 
The way I like to think of glory, the way it's described biblically, is take, a, take like a monopoly counterfeit coin or counterfeit dollar bill and then have a real coin or real dollar bill. One, is, one actually has more weight to it and more significance to it. The other one is light and worthless, insignificant. Glory is weightiness. Glory is significance. And Jesus lived his life perfectly for the glory of God. Why? Because Hebrews 1 tells us Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus shined the significance of the glory of God into the world. Shine on us, we sing. One professor of theology has this quote that I found this week. He says, The miracle of the incarnation is that this one person, Jesus, became everything that we are without ceasing to be everything that he is. You see, Jesus is God himself, and he entered into our world for him, for God's sake, to give glory to him. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's where life finds its worth. Last word we're going to look at. Little, me, and now the word coming. Jesus' coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah 5.2 says. And so Bethlehem shows us something about humanity's destiny. You see, when you think of the word destiny, it's a big word. And I think it's a word that a lot of us shy away from because it's kind of a scary concept, the idea that you and I have a destiny. What do you think your destiny in life is? I think we like to avoid it because it's, it's a big, scary concept and it puts pressure on us on a day-to-day basis. But actually, what Bethlehem shows us is that our destiny has already, has already come. Our destiny has already been identified and defined because of a certain past and a promised future. You see, the coming one, the one who was coming forth from old, came. He came. He was born of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. A destiny is something that is long planned, but it's not easily discernible in the current day but it's something that is coming no matter what. And it's something that meets you and finds you in surprising times or surprising moments. And don't you think the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was a little bit surprising? They waited for all this time, and then Bethlehem, Virgin Mary, in a stable, in the back of a house, no room in the inn, that's where the Messiah is born. Destiny for humanity was accomplished at that very moment. Because God then showed that he keeps his promises. All right. I watch a lot of kids' movies because I'm a a parent of young kids. There's a movie called Finding Dory. It's the thrilling sequel to the movie Finding Nemo. It's about fish in the ocean. And I was thinking about this concept of destiny this week. And in the movie Finding Dory, there's a a nearsighted whale shark named Destiny. And she's part of the story, and she's a clumsy swimmer because she's very nearsighted. Her eyes are on the side of her head, so (laughs) she has a hard time swimming forward. And so she's kind of a clumsy character throughout the movie. But at the very end, right when the story's kind of building up this theme of clumsiness, and right at the very end of the story, 
they're trying to, to accomplish the task of the whole movie, which is to, to get Dory back to her, her family. And Destiny, this whale shark, needs to jump out of her little pool into the ocean. And one of the other characters comes up to her, and this, all the music is very dramatic. It's just building up to this big scene, and he whispers in Destiny's ear. He says, this is your destiny, Destiny. And she jumps into the ocean. She fulfilled her call. <laughs> she found her purpose at that very moment. Surprising, built up towards this very moment. And yet, I think there was a deep tie there for us. It got, it's a humorous tie, but it, it ties us into the reality that all of us do have a destiny. All of us have our own nearsightedness, I think, in our own ways. And then at a certain moment in our life, it comes and it meets us. And for you and I, the ultimate destiny for us is this reality of what do we do with the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah in Bethlehem? And what do we make of his promise to come again, another promised coming, when he promises to come this time not in insignificance, but in deep significance, to come in glory, to come riding in majesty with a crown on his head, to judge the world and to bring sinners home forever? What do we make of that coming? Because that's ultimately where our destiny is defined, is in that coming. So this word coming, I think it's important that the word here is not going. It's not whose going forth is from of old, it's who's coming. So we think of Jesus, Jesus welcomes us. He doesn't, he doesn't well-go us, he welcomes us. He invites us into himself. Going is kind of impersonal, it's task-oriented, it's quick. Coming is invitation, it's personal. It's, it's you-oriented. It's deeply intentional. Jesus came. Jesus is coming. And if we invite Jesus into our life, he promises to come to us today. Stained glass window. I mean, it's Jesus standing at the, nor- at, the, at the door and knocking. And that's the promise of Revelation 2. He says, if you, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you let me in, I will come in and eat with you. I'll have a meal with you. And don't you see it there? Jesus is on the outside. We're on the inside. And yet the whole story of the Bible actually is the opposite. It's that we as sinners are on the outside. Jesus is on the inside. And he's inviting us into his life, into his fullness. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy from of old, this plan from old, from ancient times. He came, he's coming again. Revelation 22 says, Surely I am coming soon. And then the prayer is, come, Lord Jesus. So the invitation is here for us again. If you're here and you, and you take Jesus up on that offer, your destiny will be forever fulfilled. You see, because Bethlehem actually means the house of bread. Beth means house. Lehem means bread. Don't you see the invitation here? Jesus is inviting us to into his house of bread. Jesus later said, I am the bread of life. So the bread giver invites us into the house of bread to eat and to dine with him eternally so that your soul would find satisfaction and you'd never hunger again. Friends, come to Jesus. The birth of Jesus invites us inside by coming to us on the outside. And so the insiders of the kingdom of God are those who see their future destiny coming 
as defined by something that's already happened and someone who's already come. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Christmas shows us. We finish with the quote. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's from Queen Lucy in the story, The Last Battle, written by C.S. Lewis. And she says this. She's living in another world in Narnia, but she's recalling this story. She says, In our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And Jesus is inviting you to come in to that same world. Let me pray for us, and we'll sing one more song. Lord, thank you for this yearly reminder that you came to us to give us the greatest invitation of all, to come to you, to find life, to find the bread of life in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem shows us. And one day we will feast in the house of Zion, it says, that eternal kingdom in heaven forever with you, where you provide for us eternally. But until then, we feed on your word, on the presence of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray for those that are seeking hope, seeking significance, seeking purpose today. Lord, would you meet them? We pray for our city, for those that are seeking that as well. Lord, may you draw near to them. May you come to them in the same way you came to us, in quietness and humility and in personal invitation. We believe you can do that because you've done it for us. We trust in you, Lord Jesus. Give you our lives. We need you. Amen.